America's got money problems, inflation, out-of-control debt and spending, and it's only getting worse. But there's hope. Solving America's money problems, one hour at a time. It's time for Good Money with Tho Bishop. Good morning. This is Good Money with Tho Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute. If you're interested in more content like you will hear over the course of this next hour, you can find it at Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org. Got a great lineup of content on our front page today, um, including some articles on uh, free trade, on the role that uh, individualism has played in historical economic success uh, in the United States, uh, debunking some of the claims about uh, the higher corporate profit driving inflation myths out there as uh, from a lot of individuals, both in Washington, <clears throat> Elizabeth Warren and uh, Robert Reich, um, and debunking these as cover for a continuing inflationary policy. Um, and of course, we have commentary on a topic that we've been addressing here for the last couple of weeks, um, which has been the great debt ceiling showdown, which seems to have uh, uh, reached its conclusion after yesterday's vote in the House with uh, Kevin McCarthy making a deal with the uh, Biden administration and a, a bipartisan uh, dealing with uh, Democrats and Republicans with some opposition on both sides, but not enough to really put that vote onto uh, into, into any real, I think, concerns of, of passing from the Washington perspective. But of course, the result here was the conclusion, more or less, that we had expected on this show uh, that a inevitably the spending increases, which when we talk about federal spending uh, has been out of control for a very, very long time, and then has gotten far, far worse uh, in recent years in response to COVID, response to uh, you know the the, the Orwellian named uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which was yet another example of uh, Washington never letting a good crisis go to waste to fit to to steal more money from us for certain pet projects. Um, you know, things over as well, uh, uh, infrastructure investments in the, the guise of uh, increasing green investments in our economy and the like. And the problem is, is that while uh, for those that were concerned about the short-term ramifications to treasury markets, um, you know, some of the, the downside of the call it, general uh, uncertainty with the situation, um, what we have is the continuation of the political capture of the American economy. And this has real life direct consequences to the productive sector of the economy. Um, you know, Republicans, as they always do, campaigned on reduction of spending campaign on, in the case of the 2022 election, the 
disarmament, the, the defunding of a massive increase in IRS agents uh, that are interested increasingly in tightening their grip on things such as uh, Venmo transactions and a lot more of the small dollar transactions that Americans have become increasingly reliant upon. And so the problem is, is that we have something that can be, I think, accurately and fairly conceived as a almost a permanent wartime economy that the confiscation of resources, which is what large ever expanding physical policies from the federal government are in practice, it not only has the damage in terms of number go up in case of debt, but also has real consequences in terms of the way that resources are allocated uh, from whether they serve the private sector or the productive or the, the, the public sector. There is a fundamental lack of seriousness in, in, in dealing with these things, to put it lightly. And what we have is something that's, that, that does not, this is not a solution to the pressures that have brought us to this point. This is yet again, a kicking the can down the road. Now, in the case of this specific deal, um, it is worth mentioning some of the uh, nuances to this specific proposal. Um, it does have support from some members of Congress um, who have been rather serious on this issue, uh, one of which is a member that I have tremendous amount of respect for, Thomas Massey, um, congressman from Kentucky. And his argument essentially is that one of the dynamics of this bill is the requirement for a budget to be past in the future, which is not the way that Washington has been conducting things in recent years. They've been doing something called continuing resolutions, which kind of break up the, the they're kind of short-term measures. There's, there's no, there hasn't been a, a really large-scale budget not going through proper procedures in quite some time. Um, but basically, there is a maneuver here, um, kind of similar to the sequestration restrictions that uh, were part of a budget deal made during the Obama-Boehner years way, way back in the day, or at least so it feels, um, given everything that's happened in the past decade. Um, and those, are, those were automatic triggering dynamics there that reduced future increases, projected increases in spending um, that both sides didn't like certain Democrat priorities on that side, military priorities, which you know, Republicans have, um, you know, in recent years have historically always opposed, um, that actually ended up being triggered because of the dysfunction that has become so normalized in DC. And so that in itself was actually one of the, by 
failing to address things um, that actually triggered and was helped contribute to a, a relatively modest increase in fiscal recklessness in D.C. for a few years until uh, Republicans under the Trump administration um, got rid of those restrictions. And so this deal will in, will require a 1% across the board cut should a deal not be negotiated. So the fun of this is that if you enjoy the negotiations and the, the political theater of the debt ceiling debate, we will be playing this battle all over again at the end of the year. Again, the problem though is that what does this mean for the underlying dynamics of the economy? We're still dealing with um, highly captured parts of our economy, whether it is, um, you know, the issues placed on energy production that have a international dynamic right now, uh, given a variety of different factors. We have pressures placed on uh, small businesses and different regulatory fronts there, the consolidation of industry within larger businesses fueled by a variety of factors, including monetary policy. While the political football has been removed from this specific situation, these underlying issues continue to go unchecked. It makes America poor. It hurts your bottom line. It feeds the inflation monster we've all been facing. So what do we do about this going forward? We're going to have on the other side of the break, Dr. Jonathan Newman, an economist with the Mises Institute. We'll talk about this and a lot more here on Good Money this, more, this Thursday morning. Uh, keep, on, keep your radio on, and we'll talk to you on the other side of this break. This is Good Morning with, or Good Money with the Bishop on this Good Morning. Uh, if you are interested in uh, economic analysis, uh, relevant to our current times, and you want a, a physical uh, medium in your hands, uh, you know, if, if you've gotten rid of your newspaper subscription, but you still miss having something uh, uh, in your possession to read rather than all of the just kind of a, a purely digital existence, we have a free offering for good money listeners. Uh, the Austrian Magazine is a bi-monthly uh, once every two months, um, a publication of the Mises Institute uh, that has great commentary from some of the world's greatest economic thinkers. Um, our most recent issue uh, featured articles by uh, German economist Thorsten Paulette on the road to a single world fiat currency uh, and Robert Arrow of the Mises Institute uh, on the topic of quantitative easing to infinity and beyond, understanding some of the Fed policies of recent years. Um, Again, it's a beautiful magazine, feels that the paper feels good in your hands, and you can get a free copy delivered to your doorstep every other month at Mises.org slash magazine. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash magazine. A, uh, someone who has appeared in the Austrian magazine and has his own subscription, I know, is Dr. Jonathan Newman, an economist with the Mises Institute, formerly of Bryan College. He has now returned back to our campus in the beautiful city of Auburn, Alabama, who is joining us this morning here on Money Talk 1010. And uh, Jonathan, um, you know, a recurring 
topic of the last couple months has been the excitement of the uh, debt ceiling uh, negotiations. And I think one of the real um, concerns that I and others have about this dynamic is that it, it seems to kind of have baked into the pie uh, all of the very extreme increases in government spending that we saw during a time of emergency with COVID and the like. And I know that um, something that, that you have written and talked a lot about um, is kind of building off of the, the work of another great uh, economic thinker and economic historian, Robert Higgs, and uh, the, the ratchet effect of how uh, government spending within a time of crisis uh, usually I mean, always resort, it ends with a massive change, again, this, this normalization of higher spending levels over what came prior to. Um, can we start off by talking a little bit of, about that dynamic? Because I think this is, this is something that again, is, is largely ignored from you know, a lot of, of mainstream financial outlets out there, just the extent to which the scale of, again, physical policy in this country, which has contributed directly into the very real inflationary pressures that Americans are dealing with on a normal basis. Um, can you talk a little bit about the ratchet effect um, which is something that we are very familiar with in this post-COVID world. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm so glad you introduced Robert Higgs and his book, Crisis and Leviathan. What he did in that work was he, he just showed that the best way to explain the growth of government is not based on just these underlying trends, so it's like a long-term growth rate where there's just this sort of like mechanical increase in the size of government based on the incentives that bureaucrats have and so on. While he does say that the bureaucrats do have those incentives to increase the size of their own bureaucracy, what he noticed by surveying uh, pretty much all of uh, 20th century U.S. history is he noticed that there was a huge growth in the size of government, uh, and not just the size in terms of spending, but also in the scope the sorts of things the government does. He noticed that there were these episodes in which the size of, and scope of government would increase enormously, and that these episodes coincided with uh, moments of, of great fear and panic, uh, whether it's some sort of economic or financial crisis, or if it's the nation going to war, or something along those lines. He noticed that when, when those crisis episodes arise, the, it's almost like the government is just ready. It's, it's, it's just sitting there ready for the moment so that it can expand, so that it can get larger and larger. And while Higgs does notice that there is a, a decrease in the size of, of government afterwards, it's, it's never uh, en enough of a decrease to get us back to where we were before the crisis. So like one person, uh, one critic might say, well, yeah, that's okay, because during a crisis, we need the government to step in and help out. But what Higgs shows is that, well, the government never goes all the way back down to where it was before. And so that's why he calls it a ratchet effect. So if you think about a ratcheting wrench, for example, it only goes in one direction. So like there's, during a crisis, there's a ratcheting upwards of, of government spending, and it, it never goes all the way back down before. 
And so whether you're looking at economic crises or uh, foreign entanglements, these, these are the episodes in which the government grows enormously. And I think what we saw during the whole uh, COVID crisis was just a perfect uh, example of Higgs' thesis of, of the ratchet effect, because we saw a huge increase in the size and scope of government during, uh, during 2020 and in 2021 as well. And I, I'm afraid that you're exactly right when, when what we see in, in modern politics, our current politics with the whole debt ceiling deal and all of that, is that the, while there is some retiring of the COVID spending, the, the spending is not going back down to where it was before. The scope of government is not going back down to what it was before. In fact, we, we're just left with a permanently larger government. And to provide just a little bit of, of uh, numerical context for this, um, you know, I'm looking at an, an article by Ryan McMake of the Mises Institute, Three Lies They're Telling You About the Debt Ceiling, which came out a couple couple weeks ago, or last last week. Um, so this was before the conclusion there. But, you know, the roughly the, the spending between, uh, let's say, about 2008, you know, financial crisis to 2019, um, was somewhere between, you know, we saw about a trillion dollar increase over that period of time in 2019, you know, for, from the, you know, within that decade from, you know, budgets, again, this is post, post great recession, um, about three and a half trillion dollars up to about four and a half trillion dollars. And then we skyrocket to $6.5 trillion. We get closer to $7 trillion within uh, 2020. Um, but we have never gone back down from that $6 trillion mark since. And what this deal essentially codifies is that we will not be going back down to that, to, to, to beneath that $6 trillion mark, even if we get, um, you know, the, the, the desired 1% decrease in spending, which is the, in the view of Washington, the worst case scenario in the case of someone like a Thomas Massey that supported it, um, gets, who someone it, I, I do respect. Um, but even in the scenario that Thomas Massey so desires, we're not going to get um, anywhere close to that pre-COVID spending levels, um, just just by basic math there. And again, these these numbers, I it, it's, I understand why you know people's eyes sort of glaze over when you start talking about numbers of this sort of scale and magnitude. And I also understand how concerns about um, you know, the boogeyman of the federal debt, of a debt crisis, things that we have been hearing about, um, you know, particularly with, the, we, we've been hearing about this for, for decades and decades and decades, but in particular, it, it took on a different tone in its own right, um, you know, during the sort of a Tea Party backlash to Obama-era policies, um, though, again, Bush-era policies were not particularly better on that issue. Um, you know, it, it is easy to sort of, of tune out into, you know, particularly pre-COVID, where, um, you know, talking to small business owners, if uh, you know, who were doing so much better, um, you know, had had you know incredible success during that period. If you talk to individuals who saw their portfolio go up a great amount, if you talk to homeowners who saw equity in their house arise, you know, it's it's easy sort of to sort of disconnect these large abstract debt concerns with what really matters to our day to day life. Uh, Jonathan, can you talk a little bit about the the unseen of the this spending and how um you know the the distortions that this ever-growing 
aggressive position the federal government has in the broader American economy, um, the the consequences that 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 are being felt by mainstream America, even if they might not always be aware of the consequences to mainstream America. I'm so glad you brought that up because there is a growing number of economists who are saying uh, pretty uh, radical things like a public sector deficit is a private sector surplus and that really we shouldn't be worried at all about the amount of debt and the amount of spending that the government takes on because it's all something that helps grow the economy. It's all something that stimulates the economy and and boosts incomes for the private sector. So there's really no reason to to argue against it is what these economists say. But of course what they're what they're forgetting is that there's a categorical difference between uh, what the private sector does, what businesses and, and consumers and households do, and what the public sector does, what the government does with, with money. And the, the critical difference is this. In the private sector, businesses have to shoot for profits and avoid losses. They have to convert factors of production into something that consumers want. And when they do so successfully, it means that they're able to, to give consumers something that they're willing to pay for that's at a higher price <clears throat> than what the firm paid for those inputs. And so we can clearly see that there has been a value add, that the, what we're doing in the economy is we are converting low-valued stuff and turning it into higher-valued stuff, which is what we want to do. So profits indicate that firms are doing that successfully and that consumers like the output of those firms. On the other hand, in, in the government, there is no profit and loss mechanism. So there's no connection between how much money the government takes in and, and what they spend the money on. There are only loose sorts of connections through the, the democratic process and through voting, but it's very loose and there are all sorts of, uh, of issues and uh, we'll say wrenches in, in the mechanics of, of connecting the, the intake, the the, the taxes and the inflation that the government uh, does and what they spend the money on. And the result is we, the best that we can say for government spending projects is that we just don't know how beneficial they are. Since we don't have a measure of, of the benefit in the same way that we do with the private sector and the profits that accrue there, since we don't have that, all we can say is, well, maybe it's beneficial, maybe it's okay. But of course, I mean, we, all we have to do is take one trip to the, to the DMV or to the post office and we see that there's tons of waste. There's uh, tons and tons of things that the government spends money on that are of no benefit and in fact uh, are pretty harmful to your, to your average citizen. So it's because of this categorical difference between what the government does with money and what the private sector does with money that we have to reject that idea that a public sector deficit or any sort of spending by government is good for the economy. That sort of position totally ignores the fact that we have scarce resources that we need to use wisely, that we need to, to, to turn into valuable output uh, for the sake of consumers. And in the next segment, we're going to talk a little, little bit more about you know, some of the, the Austria perspective on some of the, the mainstream measures 
um, out there that uh, are often thrown around. But one of the dyna- uh, uh, within kind of measuring the the sort of the true success of an economy and GDP figures and things like that. But one of the things I think is, is fascinating right now is that one of the other big sort of economic headlines has been the massive um, blows to the stock performances of certain companies um, kind of within this larger cultural war battle, you know, whether it's the, the Bud Light or Target or I think increasingly, I think Kohl's was the topic of the day yesterday. And I, I think that's one of the interesting dynamics going forward is that, you know, last 10 years, the way that larger corporations, not necessarily um, smaller businesses, um, you know, there's been a lot of ways that low interest rates have been able to allow large companies to um, take on larger debt um, as as companies that, that's kind of fueled some of the consolidation aspects. There's kind of been this, this buffer effect to a certain extent um, that the Fed has performed uh, to isolating uh, uh, large corporate entities from some of the profit and loss dynamic. Um, and yet now that we're in a, a, a normal, a process of normalizing interest rates, a, a, a significant increase if you're looking at relative to a couple of years ago, but it's normalizing in the grand historical uh, scale of things, the pressures that the inflationary dynamics in part brought about by the fiscal policies um, of the last few years, as well as other dynamics, including, um, you know, the, the, you have a variety of other aspects, but the, the the component of easy money with a very heavy, aggressive tactic on the fiscal level has made some of these calculations, um, has changed the way that policymakers can try to, to undermine or, or, or under, um, try to hide, try to mask some of the consequences of their actions. And so it, I, I'm very interested to see if, you know, for those, for, for, for listeners that have been, um, you know, that, that are engaged in, in investments and things like that in the stock market and the like, you know, it's, it's quite likely that we're going to continue to see a lot more um, stress with some of these companies that are taking a more outwardly political viewpoint um, with that feedback from the consumer side of things in an environment where the Fed is less propping up a lot of these stock investments and, and prices and things like that. It's, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're the real consequences to the, the craziness of the financialized world that we're coming into um, look very differently with a normalized interest rate world. Do, do, you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. So I, I think you're exactly right. So the, the way that the Fed has, uh, has sort of put itself into the economy with this expanding scope and this expanding sort of purview, uh, it, it has really, really terrible effects. So one of the most uh, well-known relationships in economics is the relationship between the money supply and the price level. So it makes sense for us to be able to blame the Fed for all of the price inflation that we've seen. But one one thing that people don't really know as much about is the way that is the way that the price level increases is not a level rise. It's not a sea level rise where where all boats are increasing uh, in in altitude or they're all going up at the same pace. And John, we'll, we'll continue this, this line of thought on the other side of the break. This is Money Talk 1010. Good money here on this Thursday morning. Stay tuned on the other side of the break. Welcome back to Good Money. This is Tho Bishop of the Mises Institute. And if you are interested uh, in 
some more economic education. We've got a great deal for money or for good money listeners here on Money Talk 1010. We've got a great $5 bundle with two important books to help you think like an economist. One is uh, How to Think About the Economy by Oklahoma State Professor Per Byland. Uh, this has been flying off our shelves. Um, was a one of the top economic reads on Amazon, uh, I believe still is. And the other is uh, What Has Government Done to Our Money by Murray Rothbard, a classic um, to better understand money and inflation, the history of the Fed and the like. And you can get both of these books for just $5 at Mises.org slash good. That's M-I-S-E-S dot com slash good. And if you use the promo code goodmoney at checkout, shipping is included. So that's $5, no shipping, two books delivered straight to you. Great for yourself, great for if you have uh, you know, a, a student in, in high school or college and you want them to be able to see through um, some of the crazy economic ideas uh, that they'll get at most colleges. This is a great way to uh, inform them. Economic literacy is one of the most important lenses that we can have in trying to navigate this crazy uh, environment, increasingly politicized environment. And again, so that is Mises.org slash good will bring you to that special deal exclusive for our listeners. And also, if you're interested in catching up on past episodes, if you go check out Mises.org slash good money, um, you'll find previous episodes of this show. Um, for this episode, though, we have Dr. Jonathan Newman, an economist with the Mises Institute. And right before our break, Jonathan, um, you, you talked, you were, you were talking about, uh, you know, we, we were discussing the role that the Fed's previous um, aggressive expansion has played into sort of masking um, a lot of the sort of you know, some of the issues that might be underlying large firms. Um, I know one of the big concerns out there are, are so-called zom zombie firms uh, that are large companies. I mean, some of which are household names, um, you know, Uber uh, uh, and, and others, uh, particularly in the tech sphere, um, have never been profitable in the entirety of their existence, no matter how large their their names might be within our day-to-day -day lives at this point. Um, and you're talking about the, re the role that credit markets play in terms of the way that monetary policy actually trickles into the real economy. And that's and how it is, it is uneven amongst market actors. It's not sort of a all you know, a, a rising tides lift all boats dynamics. Um, you know, I, th I think it's one of the most scandalous dynamics of our politicized economy is this factor called uh, Cantillon effects, named after uh, the economist uh, Richard Cantillon. Um, who actually predated Adam Smith and his understandings of the way uh, free markets worked. Um, and it's something that Austrians in particular uh, highlight a great deal in our analysis. So can you, do, you, do you want to finish off on, on some of the thoughts you had there, Jonathan? Sure. <clears throat> sure. Uh, what I was saying was that the way the Fed operates creates winners and losers. So when, when the Fed increases the money supply, these increases in the money supply come into the economy through a particular point. It's, uh, it's not something that is injected into everybody's bank account and everybody's wallets all at the same time and in proportion. So what happens is some people uh, lose out. And the way that they benefit is by having a higher income before prices in general rise. 
And so the, the first, you can imagine somebody who's the first receiver of some new money that did not exist before, they were able to spend that money and, and purchase assets. They're able to uh, perhaps borrow that money very cheaply and then use it to expand the size of their firm. They can employ more people. And so they, they, get, they get these nice benefits where they're able to enrich themselves and then as the money is spent, as the money you know, uh, goes from person to person, as people are spending it, since uh, demand in general is rising because of the new money, prices start to rise. And as those, as those prices rise, other people have not seen their income increase yet. And so they have to pay these higher prices for, you know, at the grocery store, for, for a, a house, for, for all sorts of things that they need. Uh, before their incomes have actually risen. And so what this, what, the reason why this is important, it, it's not just because uh, income inequality and wealth inequality is such a hot topic among economists, uh, although I, I do think that if the left were, were truly serious about those, those things, then they would, they would certainly latch on to the uh, Fed policy and the effects of it that we're, that we're discussing. But the, the, what this really highlights is that nothing is free. So whenever the government uh, issues new debt and then the Fed purchases it with brand new money, it means that the government is able to acquire resources and command more resources uh, from the economy than they otherwise would have. And this is not costless. This actually costs everybody something. So the fact that the government did not collect additional taxes in order to, to purchase those things doesn't mean that the government is able to get it for free somehow. And the specific way that we pay for this, the cost to the average person when the government does that, is we see higher prices. We pay higher prices for all, the thi- all of the things that we want and need. And so that's why, that's why so many people call it the inflation tax. It's because the government is able to acquire additional resources, expand in size and scope, and it comes at the cost of everybody else in the form of higher prices, even even if taxes haven't increased. And kind of building, continuing off this topic of of nothing is costless. Um, uh, for our listeners, many of which um, might not have a, a a deep understanding of you know the, the differences between an Austrian approach to understanding the economy and some of the various mainstream traditions um, out there. Uh, something we were talking about on the other side of the break was uh, different measures in economic performance because one of the, the neat tricks that, um, you know, there's the, the, the use of statistics in communicating the economy, um, which is something that might seem very boring and very, um, it. Uh, technical to average individuals, there is almost a level of a, of a propaganda effect and the way that they're able to frame the larger conversation about economic performance. And um, I, I know one of the topics that you have uh, discussed at our Mises University program, which is a great week-long summer program, if anyone out there has a high school or college student um, that is interested in uh, a better understanding the economy, rather w- whether or not they want to be an economic major or, or go on to an academic route in that direction, um, please feel free to reach out uh, to, to me at uh, tho, T-H-O, at mises.org, or, or reach out to our, our, our website there. 
Um, but the way that we view GDP, the kind of the, the golden grail of national economic performance in the mainstream, uh, can you talk a little bit about the way the Austrian perspective of that measure differs, um, particularly when it comes to the way that government spending plays as a measure of overall productivity, taking into account what we've already discussed, um, you know, about the, the, you know, the difference of the profit loss mechanism, um, the, the, the differences in allocation of resources and the like. You know, what, what's sort of the difference in the Austrian perspective on these things? Sure. So we discussed uh, earlier about the categorical difference between government spending that is not subject to the profit and loss test and all of the spending that happens in the in the private unhampered market economy which is subject to profit and loss where people actually do have to economize where people have to make good choices so with uh, gdp it's composed of a few different things but one of them is government spending it, it includes consumption spending and investment spending it includes net exports but it also includes government spending and the the critical uh, issue here is that government spending is categorically different than those other components. So it's fine if you want to have an economic measure of, t of total spending over the year, uh, which, which is what GDP uh, purports to measure, but the fact that government spending is included means that you're getting this really warped picture of the economy. In fact, you're, you're not getting a picture of the economy at all. You're getting a picture of the economy plus this big component that acts totally different than the rest of the economy. In fact, it's, it's a component that instead of, of providing benefits or, or something that is valuable to, to everybody, is something that uh, actually represents some, a depredation on the other components of the economy. So while the rest of the economy is positive sum, where I, I earn an income and then I go to the grocery store and I buy something, and all of these exchanges are, are beneficial for everybody involved, there's this, there's this other component in GDP that is at best zero sum, but is probably negative sum. And it's because of that that uh, some Austrian school economists have actually recommended not just taking government spending out of GDP, but taking it out twice. And, and the reason why is because it's not just that the, the government is this benign tumor on our economy, but it's, it's actually malignant. It's something that is actually harming the rest of the economy. And so because of that, there, there, there have been some proposals to, to resurrect the, the GDP idea, but not just taking out government spending, but subtracting it one extra time to get a, a good picture of the actual size of the productive part of the economy. And so the, the reason this is important is because uh, it, it shows that the, the Austrian school takes things for what they are. We don't, we don't just uh, you know, receive the, these official statistics uh, from the government and say, okay, yeah, that, uh, we've got some nice economic growth. So the Austrian school takes a closer look at things. It, we, we think critically about what's being included in statistics. We think critically about, about how the market operates and, and what exactly the government is and does and how it affects uh, your average citizen, um, as opposed to just you know, taking, the, taking the government for, for what it says. So that, that's why I would highly recommend this Austrian view of the economy. And I think one of the great historical episodes that I think does a wonderful job of illustrating this fact were the concerns in the um, 80s uh, over the size of the Soviet economy, where you had people like Paul Samuelson with a very mainstream, very prominent, very powerful textbook within the tradition 
um, you know, projecting that the Soviet economy would overtake the United States economy in a, in a matter of a few years based off of GDP estimates over you know, the, the Soviet Union, um, which obviously very much factored in Soviet directed spending. And yet only a few years after that, you saw the complete collapse because the underlying productive forces, they were being eroded. And this is why the Austrian perspective is so important for understanding these issues in our, in, in our day-to-day lives. Thank you, Jonathan Newman, um, for, for joining us here today um, on, on Good Money. Stay tuned on the other side of the break. We're going to close out the hour here on Good Money, here on Money Talk 1010. Welcome to the final segment here on Good Money on this beautiful Thursday morning. This is Stowe Bishop of the Mises Institute. M-I-S-E-S dot org is our website. Um, if you're interested in more content like this, and we have multiple articles every single day providing an Austrian lens uh, to some of the most pressing issues of the day. But it's not simply enough, in my opinion, to look at the news cycle from a daily basis. There is no replacement to better understanding the times we live in now than having the lens that history provides in terms of providing wisdom uh, from the past and the way that it shapes our perspectives of our day-to-day life. And that's one of the aspects of the Mises Institute Um, that even as someone who has worked for the Institute for a very long period of time and was a fan and consumer of content from far beyond that, um, I still find new treasure troves of uh, economic history that rings differently depending on uh, the challenges that we have uh, in, in our current environment And this is something that this historical perspective is something that is important to understand only because the lack of it is so baked into so much of what the mainstream economic profession really has today. Um, Within the the current state of the economics profession, uh, you can get a PhD in economics from a variety of very important, impressive, powerful institutions without having that historical lens at all. Um, As Jonathan, as Dr. Newman mentioned earlier uh, in the show, um, you know, the, the Austrian perspective relies upon seeing through the mathematicalization via stats, via these models and tries to apply a, the, the logic of an economic lens into how things act rather than simply work with what is easily charted. Um, you know, one of the, the episodes I mentioned right before was the example of the Soviet Union, and that's a very um, interesting one uh, to me. And one, one of the, the interesting figures within that history um, is an economist named Dury, uh, Dr. Yuri Moltsev, who uh, we lost earlier this year, um, but he is a, a, an individual who you know, I, I considered a, a friend, um, someone who I had an incredible amount of respect for. And his story, I think, is fascinating because he was someone who was a, a, an economist for 
the Soviet Union, um, but someone who discovered the work of F.A. Hayek during his career in the USSR, who uh, with just to some personal risk uh, consumed the ideas of F.A. Hayek and those associated with them, such as Lud von Mises, by which the, the Mises Institute gets his name. And he was able to defect from the Soviet Union um, in the, the, the later days, um, you know, in the late 80s, prior to the fall, uh, the collapse of, of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And what was interesting is that when he came to the United States, uh, he was grilled um, by various American officials trying to figure out what really was the underlying strength of the Soviet economy. And what Yuri realized is that the American understanding was so disconnected from the realities that he experienced living in the Soviet Union. Um, you know, off by, by multiple magnitudes of the true strength there. Um, the CIA's projections were, were multiple times higher than um, Dr. Moltsev's own experiences, his own, his own estimates there. And because of that analysis, policymakers were devising different strategies uh, to try to, to, to deal with that issue, uh, all of which were, were not baked into the realities on the ground. Um, I, I think you're seeing a very situation now when we have conversations about China. Um, the Chinese economy, much like the Soviet economy, is one that is so heavily influenced by the desires, plans, wishes of the uh, Chinese Communist Party that controls the regime there. Um, and so we often hear these concerns about the Chinese economy overtaking the United States, that, that it is setting a model. And this is the scary thing is that it's setting a model for the rest of the world. And you, you kind of, when they kind of drop the guard a little bit, um, technocrats, both in Europe and the United States will actually say they would like to see the American economy become a lot more like that. Um, and yet when you actually look the amount of debt, the amount of government capture that still exists. And so this is why having an economic lens on being able to see through the propaganda, the way that these economic discussions are framed is so important to better understanding the world that we live in right now. This is what we are trying to do here every Thursday morning on Good Money. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you next Thursday. In Mises.org, you can find a lot more information like this, M-I-S-E-S.org. -E